Check. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> I'm pulling double duty today. <laughs> you got it. All right. We are ready. Right. Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I love to sing your praises. I'm so glad you're in my life. I'm so glad you came to save us. You came from heaven to earth to show the way from the earth to the cross. My death to faith from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky, Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I love to sing your praises. I'm so glad you're in my life. I'm so glad you came to save us. You came from heaven to earth to show the way from the earth to the cross. My death to pay from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. Lord, I lift your name on Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I lift your name on high. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, 
so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Almost seems odd to have communion at Christmas time. I don't know why. It just seems odd to me. But it seems oddly appropriate as well. So, does nobody like you today, Marsha? <laughs> just as something to Matt. It's like the whole room is over there, and then Marsha. So, if I don't look at you today, I apologize, all right? It's nothing personal. <laughs> just everybody sat over there. Um, this morning, we get to be reminded that the work of Christ is a work of entering into history, a work of sacrifice and a work of reconciliation. So as we partake this morning, we partake as his people, reconciled to God because of the great work that we celebrate at Christmas. Um, as we did last month, I'll ask that you guys just kind of come up this row, go ahead and grab a wafer and a cup, and then return to your seat. And if you could, wait, and we will partake of the meal together. All right? So since you have the farthest walk, you know, I'll let you start first, and then we'll just kind of go by row. Does that make sense for you guys? All right, so go, we'll go ahead and begin. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the body that you took, the one that was given, broken for us, for the blood that you spilled to seal the new covenant, reconciling us to yourself. Lord, we thank you. We pray that you would strengthen us to remember that work each and every day. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.
don't think there can be any more appropriate action in light of all that than to do what the early church would have done, which is to stand and sing. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. With angelic hosts proclaims, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels sing, Glory to the newborn King. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, the offspring of the virgin's womb. Born in flesh, the God and seed, heavy and mighty this morning. Um, let's see. Mike and Jan are under quarantine. Mike tested positive for COVID. So other, other than testing positive, he seems to be doing all right. They mm-hmm, yeah. gave him some medication. So he is at home doing well. I spoke to him the other day. He actually had air and was breathing. And we said if there was one person we knew was going to get it, it was going to be Mike. And he went <laughs> ahead and got it. So he couldn't stay away. He just couldn't do it. No, There was, there was a disease running around. He had to have it. He likes to participate. <laughs> uh, Bill is also not here because Bill and Judy are quarantining because Bill has tested positive. He was doing a little bit worse, but uh, he he uh, managed to get pneumonia with it. But once they figured that out and got a medication for that, 
he's doing much better. So he's breathing and kind of functioning. So, so far, so good. We're waiting on test results for Sam and Shelby. They were not feeling well, so they went and got tested. So they're just being safe and staying home. Um, Ginger and Daryl are home. They don't have COVID as far as we know, but Ginger's <laughs> asthma and flu season and being on the bus is just playing havoc with her, so she is still not well. Uh, Elizabeth was here last Sunday. She's not here this week. She went to the hospital last week. They uh, Someone checked on her, and her blood sugar was 21. 20, yeah. What? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, usually 30 is the danger zone, and she... <laughs> I didn't know it could get that low and still read. So her exact description, she goes, I don't know what was going on. All of a sudden, there were just a bunch of people in my house, and they told me they were, I was going to the hospital. So uh, I'm, guessing, I'm guessing Emily was at the house and kind of realized something was up. So she has been doing fairly well since she got home. She doesn't know why it was that low. She had taken her medicine. She didn't think she'd eaten anything weird or anything like that. So she's just keeping a manage on that and, and recovering. <laughs> so instead of, Lou asked, where is everybody? I'm like, apparently everybody is, is homesick. Everybody is homesick. Uh, tis the season. Now, if you, look at, if you look at hospital records, nobody has anything but COVID. But we, we uh, <laughs> Becca had strep. Cameron and Connor had strep last week. So there's all sorts of stuff going on. I have a lovely cold, so I, I, I lay in bed. I, I can breathe until I go to bed. And then I go to bed and lay down and walk. And then I don't breathe all night. So. Tis the season. It's what we get to do. Also, um, remember 80s family? His sister, Carolyn, passed away this morning. So, I'm telling you, it's just not a good year. 2020 needs to hurry up and end before anything else happens. <laughs> Let's have good news. How is your foot doing? See, all right, there we go. I take, I will take good news where we get it. Your foot is healing. Yay. Amen. Um, oh, so let me just make sure I cover everybody. Clark is not sick, but he has a sister that he tries to see on a regular basis, and she has just had heart surgery. So when he when he said everybody is sick, I'm just trying to avoid a crowd of people for a little while. So that's where, that's where Clark is. He's not sick. He's just being safe because he wants to be able to go see his sister. So there you go. <laughs> Did I leave anybody out? Um, uh, if Elena's not here, that's her asthma's acting up. So Elena, between Jeff's shoulder and Elena, Elena's asthma, they're home. <laughs> I, I'm telling you, we are falling apart. I have not heard from Jay and Renee. I didn't hear from Vern, so I'm hoping there's nothing wrong there. <laughs> when they all give back, we'll have a lot to be thankful. There we go. That's what we're just going to have to go with. I tell you, it, it just, it's like everything waited for December, and then everybody decided we're all going to get sick at the same time, so... Yeah, there you go. So, all right. We are done with the church survey results, so you can stop being depressed about what Christians claim to believe. So back to trivia. So let's remember the rules. Don't say it out loud. All right? Do not say the answer. We'll put it in the bulletin next week, okay? I thought you was going to say don't do dumb things. <laughs> <laughs> That's standard. That's, that, is, that rule is always in effect. Read your Bible to do you good, and don't do dumb things. Those That's are, right. Those are always in effect. All right. Why did Joseph and Mary go to the city of David? Don't say it out loud. I know you're smart people, and you know it. The goal of this is not that you know the answer. It's that you know the reason behind the answer. Don't say it. Don't. You can say it next week. So mm -hmm. below the question of the day is the reason for the question. The goal of that is to get you to, I know I'm a terrible, horrible person. I want you to read your Bible a little, do a little research, and 
and actually be able to apply something. There is stuff to be learned and done with this information. We don't want to just sit there and go, I can pass the Bible quiz. I have knowledge. We want to be able to do something with that knowledge. It's good for us, all right? So read that. Go home. Look it up. Do the research. Read your Bible. It'll do you good. good. There you go. All right. Anything else I'm forgetting? Please tell me no, because that would mean somebody else is sick. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I can handle somebody else being sick. Um, in that case, I'm going to stop rambling, and we will can. Yes! Yay! See, I will take every bit of good news. I don't care if you're recovering from an ingrown toenail or, you know, they removed an ingrown hair that shaved correctly. I'm celebrating everything right now because there there is one other update I should give. Um, Gail is still in the same boat. They have nothing done major with testing or anything like that. They're still waiting just to kind of see what's going on. That's why she has not been here because if they are going to do another surgery on her breast, because they do think it's cancer, they want to make sure that she hasn't been exposed to anything so they can basically schedule her and get her in. That's why she's been staying home. And that's why Matt's been staying home because he lives there. So it doesn't do any good to quarantine her and not quarantine him. So there you go. So remember, try to remember Matt and Gail in your prayers as well. All right, anything else? All right, in that case, I'm going to get out of the way and we can continue on with our worship. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare you room. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and heaven and nature sing. He rules the world with truth and grace. And let the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love, and wonders of his love, and wonders and wonders of his love, and wonders and wonders of his love. What child is this who lay to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? The angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch our keeping. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds 
Let loving hearts enthrone him. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him loud, the babe, the son of Mary. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him loud, the babe, the son of Mary. I clean this out and organize it every week, and every week I put my water in there, and then it rolls across and, and scares me half to death. You would think it would be organized at some point, and for some odd reason, it is, it's just not. I don't know why it's not. I put everything in the same place every single week, and every week it's, I put it back in the exact same place. I don't know why it does that. I don't know how it does that. I just know that it does that. So, there you go. Uh, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm starting to think somebody's coming in behind me. And just I'm just going to put it right back where it was. Uh, which I did actually have that the other day. I kept organizing something in the kitchen. I don't remember what it was, but I kept putting something in a certain spot, and then I'd walk away and come back, and it was moved. And I was organizing it one way, and Cameron on the other side of the kitchen, when she came through, was organizing it the other way. So we both thought we were losing our minds because we kept reorganizing the same thing. I'm like, I swear I did this, and... Okay, never mind. <sighs> just just never mind. <laughs> All right, something productive and useful this morning. Since I am not that clever and I've run out of really clever things to do during Advent, uh, we're just going to do the Christmas story this year. That's just easy enough, right? Yay! <laughs> Which kind of makes life a little bit easy for me because I can organize it a little bit better, and that helps me. So, Luke 1. We'll be here this week, next week, and then the Sunday before Christmas. We'll make it all the way to Luke 2, and then Christmas Eve service, we'll do something completely different and have fun with it that evening. And that's also, by the way, this is my selling point. If you want to see the giant candle lit, you got to come to the Christmas Eve service because it's the only time that's getting lit, which is why that candle will last us 87 years. Because if we only light it for about an hour once a year, I don't think we'll ever burn that out. Not sure it's possible. So, all right. Just like last week, though, a heads up, what do we not do when it comes to Luke 1? We don't want to just like, hey, what's going on here? We need to have some background. Now, the one advantage is if you're starting in chapter 1, verse 5, you haven't missed a whole lot, have you? Not a whole lot there to miss. And in Luke, you really have only missed his introduction. 
who he's writing to, why he's writing, and all of that good stuff. And by the way, that's Theophilus, and he's writing around 60, 61 AD. The reason we say that, historically speaking, Luke and Acts are companion books. They are written together. They are completed with Paul's imprisonment, which is somewhere around 62-ish AD. Therefore, the events of the, the book has to be written before the end of the imprisonment in 62. Therefore, the books are written before 62. And since he's got to take some time to write Acts, we move Luke a little bit forward into around 60, 61 AD. You didn't need to know that, but now you do. More importantly for our history, though, is not what's going on in this book, but what has been going on historically for the setting of the book. Those are two different places. When the narrative of Luke picks up here in verse 5, we are at the end of the 400 years of silence. Throughout Israel's history, there has been a consistent testimony from God through the prophets, through the kings, about what was coming, how things were working, and what was going to happen when they did. That ends with the last Old Testament prophet, who, as we say, is the great Italian prophet Malachi. Take care again. As, as someone with an Italian last name, you got to make sure we say it correctly. No. It is Malachi. He is the end of the Old Testament prophets. He enters into, or he inaugurates, the 400 years of silence that ends with the last of the Old Testament prophets and the first of the New Testament prophets, which is technically John the Baptist. Even though he is in the New Testament, he is still in the mold of the Old Testament prophets. Now, Malachi prophesies the coming of the Messiah. You're going to leave people with a parting word. That parting word should be looking towards the things that are going to bring reconciliation. So Malachi 4.2. For you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Where have I heard that before this morning? <laughs> I think. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Here you go. <laughs> <laughs> for a split second, where is the music coming from? It's coming from behind me. Huh? That was a little creepy because I'm sitting there for a second going, there's nobody behind me. I didn't see the jacket at first. <laughs> no, don't worry about it. <laughs> there you go. For you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. So the Messiah is coming. It's part of the promise. On the whole, Israel as a nation has settled into a works-righteous system. Now keep in mind I said on the whole. If you remember last week when we looked at Isaiah 9, you have judgment promised against sin, but you have what promised? You had righteousness and justice and a kingdom promised for the remnant that is in Israel. We'll see this morning that remnant, even after 400 years of silence, in action. The reason why I say, though, as a whole, they have settled into a works-righteous system is because that's the testimony we get from the New Testament, Romans chapter 10. I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So you have a connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. John the Baptist is your hinge person, and the events of Luke 1 kind of form that mesh point that allows them to go together. So with all of that said, you kind of have an idea of the world in which we get to dive into here with Luke 1. So let's read verses 5 through 17. 
In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zecharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. You're going, this is Christmas? Yes, this is part of the Christmas. You need this. This doesn't, Jesus doesn't make any sense without these initial steps first. So, Let's rewind to the beginning and let's have some fun because there's some good stuff in here that we will miss if we only focus on the Christmas parts, all right? So verse 5, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, I've said this before, I will say it again. How does every fairy tale start? There you go. Once upon a time, notice your Bible never, ever does that, ever. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. Now stop. What's a Herod, king of Judea? Well, his reign begins in 37 BC. He is an Idumean, which means he is an Edomite, who has been granted power by Rome. He is your, I don't know, he's your make, make Jerusalem great again king. He wants to appease the people by becoming the great builder. So the Temple Mount, when you see the temple at Watch the news today when they show Jerusalem and they're at the Wailing Wall. That's the remains of the work that Herod had begun. The, the Herodian temple there, that massive structure. The temple of uh, the temple. The, uh, what's it called? What's the place where you keep the soldiers and they get ready to go out to battle? Fort, thank, oh my goodness. <laughs> Someone didn't have enough coffee this morning. <laughs> the, uh, the fort at Masada, that's Herod's work. The port at Caesarea, which fe uh, features so prominently in the book of Acts, that is also Herod's work. Now, for as good of a job he does as a builder, this was not the guy you invite to Christmas dinner. He was a brutal man. He killed his wife. He killed his mother-in-law. Don't laugh. That is not a suggestion. He killed his brother-in-law, and he also killed several of his sons. No, not a family guy, no. You didn't get Christmas cards from Herod. You got assassins in the mail, apparently. Now, we point this out because if you've ever read in the Gospel of Matthew and you're going, how does Herod just decide to wipe out an entire countryside of children? It's kind of on character for this guy. Now, we set this. So Herod, king of Judea, we know who he is. There was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. All right. What's a Zacharias? 
name literally means Yahweh has remembered. Now, what do we mean the division of Abijah? There were thousands of priests across Israel in various places and in towns. They were organized into 24 divisions, hence the division of Abijah. They would leave their local regions two times a year, and for two weeks they would serve at the temple in Jerusalem. So you kind of had a schedule. It's like the, the temple version of the National Guard. You know, you're, two, you're one weekend a month, two weeks a year. Same idea here for the temple priests. This Zacharias has a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name is Elizabeth. Now, why do you care who her family is? To get you thinking. This is a lesson in reading your Bible, and this is why I point these things out. Do you really care who her family line is? I mean, does it matter in the grand scheme of things? Not, not really. But the detail is included, which means... Follow our logic here, all right? Holy Spirit inspires scripture. So the ultimate author behind Luke is God. Does God speak just because he likes the sound of his own voice? No, he speaks for a reason, which means when you're reading and you see a detail like of the daughters of Aaron, and her name is Elizabeth, well, who cares whose daughter she is? Who cares she's of the line of Aaron? Stop. There's a reason that detail is there. Let's think about it and understand what this would tell us. They both would know the gospel. They both would know the requirements of the law. They both would know the standard for righteousness. Why? What did Elizabeth's father do for a living? He's a priest. What would her brothers have done for a living? They're priests. Her cousins. You grow up in a house full of priests, what do you hear a lot? <laughs> you better hear the commands as well. Any children, any sons that she had, what would they be expected to be? Priests. Zacharias is a priest. His wife is the daughter, sister, and hopefully one day mother of priests. They know. And they know that they know because what has their entire life been built around? This. Now, time out. With that said, I said they knew the gospel. What gospel? Jesus hasn't come yet preaching the gospel. Remember what we started off with. There is a connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Do not, please, I'm begging you, do not fall into the trap of thinking that we have separate stories in the Testaments. They are one scripture. They are one book. Now, what is that Old Testament gospel? Luke actually tells you in this chapter. So verse 6, they were both righteous in the sight of God. How does that happen? Well, see, that's the, that's the trap we fall into. We go, well, they followed the commandments. Stop. Does your righteousness come from your actions? No. Remember, um, theologically speaking, we have an imputed righteousness. It means it was something that is outside of us. It is an alien imputed righteousness. Alien meaning something that does not belong. So something that was outside of us has been put upon us and imputed, meaning put into us. It is not given for a short period. It is there. It is yours. It comes from Christ. That's the Philippians 2 passage we read before communion, that Christ is our righteousness. Christ is the one who is the name above every name, not us. We identify with him, and we hold to his 
righteousness. My goodness is not internal to me because of me. It is internal to me because of the work of Christ. So when we say that about us, and we say that there is one salvation, New Testament to Old Testament, then what would have been true of them? The exact same thing. So Luke is telling you they are righteous. They have an imputed righteousness from God. What does that look like before Christ? We'll go back to your Old Testament. Genesis chapter 15. Abraham believed in the Lord, and God reckoned it to him as righteousness, a trust. What did God say? I will do this thing. And Abraham says, I believe that you will do that thing. Therefore, that is a trust. That is a walking in faith in what God has promised. Um, by the way, that hasn't changed, Christian. Don't let the world change the definition of faith on you. Faith is not, well, of course you have faith. You believe there's a God. See, that's not what that means. You know there's a God. Everybody knows there's a God. We covered this last week. Go back to YouTube and watch last week's. It'll do you good. You know that he's there. Your faith is not that God. Your faith is in God, what he has promised, what he has said he will do. Why do I believe that I have an imputed righteousness? Because God has promised it. Why do I believe there will be a kingdom? Because God has promised it. Why do I believe that I am redeemed for my sins? Because that is what God has promised. I know that he is there, and I know that he fulfills his promises. Therefore, my faith is an active walking in a belief that God will accomplish all that he has said that he will. You see that in Abraham. You saw that in Noah. You'll see that in the prophets. You see this throughout the Old Testament. Let's read through some of it. Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing in the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Psalm 130. If you, Lord, should mark iniquity, Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Habakkuk 2. This is your hallmark. If you don't know any other Old Testament verses, know Habakkuk 2.4. The proud one, his soul is not right within him. The righteous will live by faith. If you don't know anything else, Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous will live by faith. Psalm 32 reminds you this. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. See, Paul quotes that and asks that question in Romans 4. How does that occur? The answer is by faith. All based on what? The promise of God. What promise of God? Just like we covered last week. The son born to the woman. The one who will grant rest. The one who will be a prophet like Moses. The one who will be a king like David. The one who will be the priest to offer sacrifice like Isaiah 53. All of those promises in the Old Testament pointing you to a future fulfillment. The, fa the faith, the Faithful saints, say that three times fast, the faithful saints of the Old Testament are saved because they are trusting that what God has promised, he will deliver. We just stand on, on the other side of part of the fulfillment. What he has promised to them, he has delivered. Are all of his promises delivered yet? No. We still have sin. We still have suffering. We still have death. We do not have a kingdom yet. But what do we know? That God has promised those things will come to pass and we walk faithfully in light of them. Case in point. So they are both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. They're truly saved. How do we know this? That description. 
What's our one big fancy theological word we would use to describe someone who's walking blamelessly in the commandments and requirements of the Lord? Now, they are, they are declared righteous, they are acting in righteousness, but what's our fancy theological word for walking in righteousness? Say it loud in the back. They are being sanctified. See, they are growing in their righteousness. They are walking faithfully. This is the path of sanctification. I'm better today than I was yesterday. My goal is to be better tomorrow than I was today, to continually walk and root out sin each and every day. Remember, please remember this. You will wake up one day, many, many years from now, and go, I can't believe I still sin. Like, was I doing this the entire time? And the answer is, yes. But are you sinning in the same way you did 30 years ago? I hope not. Are you sinning in the same manner or degree that you were 30 years ago? I hope not. That's part of the walk. Why did the Holy Spirit wait till that point to reveal that sin? Well, because that's when you were ready to deal with that one. Before then, you were dealing with another one. And when was the time to deal with that one? When the Holy Spirit brought it to your attention. Which one do you go to war with? The one you know about right now. Again, where does my sanctification start? At what point? Now. It starts right now. What can I deal with? How do I glorify God now? Can I deal with how I glorify God 20 minutes ago? No. Can I deal with how I glorify God an hour from now? No. I can deal with how I glorify God what? Now. If I, were, if I deal with now, you know what's going to happen in an hour from now? That'll take care of itself because I'm dealing with now. See how that works? It's amazing how that happens. God is carrying them along. God is redeeming. God is sanctifying. God is pushing them to the completion that he desires. We mentioned this before. You see this with the work of Job, who's described as walking blamelessly. And by the way, not a thing has changed. Because as you're walking by the Spirit, what are you producing, hopefully? Fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness. I lost my list. Hang on, I should probably look at it, shouldn't I? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, if I can get my papers right. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Why? Because these are the good things that the Holy Spirit produces in God's people. Why? Because they are God's people. He is carrying them along. What does faithful living look like? It looks like producing those things day by day, year by year, lifetime over the course of a lifetime. So, verse 7. For all this good news, there's always bad news, isn't there? They had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. <sighs> I say this is bad news. See, this is where you have to make sure you, you take your culture off when you read your Bible. Is it a big deal today that people would not have kids? Now, people don't have kids all the time nowadays, but back then, would this be a big deal? Yes, this would have been viewed as a judgment from God, believe it or not. Why? Because who opens the womb? God does. Who grants children? God does, which means if he hasn't given you children, and children are a blessing from God, well, then you become Job's friends. What'd you do? You've done something. What did you do? Now, the reason why that's such a terrible way to view things is because how many of you know your history of patriarchal procreation? You're like, what? Children of the patriarchs in the Old Testament. How many of them just got married and had kids like nothing was going on? I'll help you out. Basically, none of them. Basically, none of them. Abraham and Sarah, no children until who decides? God. Even Isaac and Rebekah, 
Rebecca comes in. She sees Isaac out in the field. She gets off the whatever she was riding, the camel, the horse, whatever. She covers herself. They get married, have kids right away, right? No, it's, it's like 20 years, and Isaac has to pray that God would do something. Even with Jacob, Jacob just starts having kids right off the bat, and it's such a wonderful experience, right? <sighs> Read the rest of Genesis. It'll do you good. Jacob and family is a train wreck waiting to happen. Not everything bad from a human perspective is a punishment. Some things are a result of the fall. Some things are God's timing not yet being there. Some things are all part of his plan. All are decreed by him for various reasons. If you want a great testimony to this, read the book of Daniel. When you see Nebuchadnezzar exalting himself in his glory and God finally strikes him down, giving him madness for, you know, let's go, let's go have you eat some grass and grow your hair real long for a couple of years. What does Nebuchadnezzar learn from that experience? The end of Daniel 4. At the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? And you're probably going, that's a weird testimony to have for somebody who finally understood God. And I would say, no, no, it isn't. Because what it's a testimony to is the power and sovereign rule of God. Because when I recognize that everything in my life that is good, bad, and ugly comes at the guiding and allowing hand of God, then I start to view the things of this world a whole lot differently. Because as a Christian, I'm already starting from an assumption that you know who God is that he is good, that he is building his kingdom, that he is carrying you to the day of completion. Therefore, when I encounter things that I don't like or that I don't appreciate, I have to recognize that there is an inherent value for my soul in these things. Hence the reason why he has given it. Nebuchadnezzar understood that. It was meant to crush his pride, meant to, cr meant to crush his self-exaltation, meant to show him that he was not on the throne of creation, that God was. Therefore, when we see this, they had no children because she was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Their righteousness, their salvation, their childlessness, their priestly lineage are all a part of God's working for their good, and more importantly, for his glory and eternal kingdom. So, 8 and 9. It happened that while he was performing, this is Zacharias, his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division. According to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, the way this was set up in Israel at this time, this would happen in a priest's lifetime basically once. Remember, thousands of priests, you only go serve for a couple weeks, you could go years and never be draw, drawn by lot. This is a big time honor. This would also be done quickly because there's a genuine fear of the priest going in before the presence of God that he might sin and get killed. <laughs> so you got a couple of things going on. You have a reverence for God. You have a choosing. Now, time out real quick. What are the odds? I mean, what, what are the odds? Zechariah has been doing this for years. He's advanced in age. He's been doing this for years. He's never been chosen before. Why now? What are the odds that now this guy is chosen at this time to do this work. See, there it is. When was it the time for him to do it? 
when God sent him in. Why now? Because now is the time for God's working to come to pass. Uh, Remember that remnant we talked about? Verse 10. The whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. Remember, read your Bible with reality in mind. The whole multitude of the people. Everyone in Israel is standing outside the temple, right? No. That would be silly. That would be ridiculous. I say that, though, because what's your first reaction when you read the whole multitude of the people? It's to think about this massive crowd standing outside, that all of Jerusalem has come out to stand and pray. And look, it may have been a massive crowd. I'm not saying it wasn't. I'm not saying it is. I don't care. What I'm saying is, what are we talking about? The whole multitude of what people? The people who care about the work Zacharias is doing. The people that care about the offerings of the temple. The people that care about the promise of the Messiah. The people that care about the kingdom of God. The faithful remnant that Isaiah was talking about. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. The ones who are longing for the promises. The ones who are the the first purple candle we light. The candle of hope. The reminder that God has not forgotten There is a kingdom, there is a righteousness, there is a salvation that is promised, and it will be delivered. So, while all of this just so happens to be going on with this person at this time, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zechariah was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. All right, first things first. Good response. I I mean, good response. Angels show up, be afraid. Why? What do the angels do? Where do they stand each and every day? They stand before a holy God, ministering and working. When you stand before something that stands before a holy God, what are you immediately confronted with? Him holy, me not. You want a good example of this? Go back to Isaiah again in the Old Testament. Isaiah standing before God, the vision of the throne, and the angels that are making their praises. What was Isaiah's response? This is so awesome! No, 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 no. The foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. One of the lessons we don't remember nearly often enough. When God shows up in the Old Testament, people freak out. Every single time. The only time you see people not freaking out in the Old Testament is because God has veiled himself in some shape, form, or fashion. So you have... Um, Abraham seeing God as he's heading towards Sodom and Gomorrah, Christ in flesh, what we call a Christophany in the Old Testament, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. So Christ and the two angels are there to have the meal with Abraham. and there's, He's veiled in some way. He's taken on flesh. It's the only reason Abraham's not freaking out. You see this with the wrestling match with Jacob. So he doesn't recognize that it's God because God has covered him. God has veiled him. The rest of the time, when God comes down on Mount Sinai, The thunder and the smoke and the shaking, everybody's saying what? We're going to stay right here. And, you know, God tells them no one is allowed to come up the mountain. Everybody goes, I did not need to be told that. Moses, you can go talk to him. We're going to wait right here. 
Yeah, we're, we're good. I'm, I'm, I'm good here. You see this with the promise of the birth of Samson. Manoah and his wife are a little freaked out when they realize, we saw God. We're still alive. Go team. Same thing when you see the angels. You see the same thing with Zacharias here. Do not lose that. Too often, we, we, we flip-flop from ditch to ditch. I'm going to use this example until the end of time or until someone gives me a better one. But there are ditches on both sides of the road, right? You don't want to end in either one. Has anybody ever said, well, you know, I didn't fall into the right-hand ditch, but I crashed in the left one. No, you're still disappointed because you did what? You went in the ditch. Nobody ever goes, I hit the left one instead of the right one at least. No, they just tell you I ran into the ditch. The ditch we have a tendency in our world is to forget the transcendence of God, his bigness. The modern world and modern Christianity is very geared towards an overload on the nearness and what we call the imminence of God. So fancy theological terms, transcendence, something, is, something that is beyond you, something that is separated from you. Imminent, something that is very near and close to you. When you listen to popular Christian teaching, read popular Christian books, and listen to popular Christian music, you will get an overdose on the imminence, the nearness of God. There's a whole genre of songs. I like to call them the Jesus is my boyfriend songs. You know what I'm talking about when you listen to, to modern Christian pop and you're like, I kind of like this. And then you realize, but, but is he singing about God or my significant other? And then, then you get that heebie-jeebie in the back of your head and you stop. We get overloaded on that because we get separated from our righteousness. We get separated from our faithful walk so often that the way we think to recover it is to get that recharge of emotion. No, 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 no. Don't do that. That's one ditch. The other ditch, though, is to recognize that God is transcendent all the time. And we fear him, and we don't come to him in prayer, and we don't trust him with our lives, and we don't trust him with our salvation. Don't do that either. Recognize that we are traveling in the middle of the highway, and that we have a large, powerful, omniscient, almighty God who loves us and cares for us and walks with us in our daily battles. And when we keep those things balanced, we don't need an emotional high because we have what? We have a knowledge that changes the way we walk and live because it grounds us rightly in who God is. So this is a right response because it's a recognition of himself, but at the same time it is not an overwhelming response, which would be good. So we will continue. Verse 13. The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. Now, stop real quick. Why is Zacharias there in the temple? Well, no, no, no. I'm not talking about big picture. I'm talking about practically. Like, did Zacharias just show up and be like, hey, I know what I want to do. I want to go, you know, walk around in there. He's there to make offering for the people, to burn the incense. Do, do you just, like, run in there? Light the candle and then run back out? <laughs> he's, he's offering prayers for who? For the people, for the nation, for the world. And while you're there, who else would you pray for? I mean, I'm here. I'm offering on behalf of the people. But you know who's making this offering prayer? I am. You know who gets to include what's in the prayer? I do. So let's include a little bit of everybody. Don't blame the man. You'd have done the same thing, and I don't fault the man. He should have. 
while I'm here, I'm going to cover everything because this is as close to the presence of the Lord as he's ever going to stand as a priest. He's not high priest. He's never going to go behind the veil. This is as close as he's going to be to the glory of the Lord at the altar. This is this is it. You know what? I'm offering prayers for the nation. I'm offering prayers for anything else. You know what I'm going to include? One for me too, especially because if your lack of children has been viewed as a judgment from God and you have gotten older, how long and how many days Zacharias and Elizabeth pray for children? Every day. More than likely. And now that you have the opportunity to stand this close to the glory of the Lord, what do you, what's, your, what's your thing? You pray. So, your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. All right. John. Why John? Literally means Yahweh is gracious. Notice the two names. What did Zechariah's name mean? Did you remember or did you forget already? Bad sermon listeners, you forgot already. <laughs> That's it. Two demerits for everyone. No. <laughs> Yahweh has remembered. Where are we in history? At the end of 400 years of silence. I mean, men, you ever get the silent treatment from your wife for like a couple of hours? <laughs> Don't look at him. <laughs> Feels a lot longer, doesn't it? Imagine if God hasn't spoken through a prophet for four centuries. Who lies to you the most? Who lies to you the most? You do. Now, does Satan help that? Absolutely not. The tools that he has are most likely your sin and the most likely the sin that you concoct in your brain half the time. How easy is it to convince a group of people that God has forgotten them when they haven't heard from him for four centuries? Would be pretty easy. How easy would it be to try to twist and contort the words of Scripture when people have been doing it themselves for four hundred years? How easy would it be to convince them that God had forgotten them when their nation is in shambles, their national sovereignty has been taken away, and everything that they thought they had been promised hasn't come yet? Yahweh has remembered. He has not forgotten, and in the midst of that remembrance, he is also gracious, because that's what John's name means. Christian, remember this, please, because I have a funny feeling that the majority of you at some point in the last year or two has sat down and looked and gone, why is my country like this? Why are my neighbors like this? Has God really forgotten us? One, you're not Israel. Two, Yahweh has remembered. And what he has caused or what he has allowed is for your good, for his glory, and spurring his people towards completion in his eternal kingdom. Remember, this place, this life is not my goal. It is a stopping point. It is a traveling way unto eternity where God rules, God reigns, and a kingdom that will be inaugurated that demonstrates his glory throughout creation. Don't forget it. It's the lesson they needed then. In Christian, it's the lesson we need now. So, he's going to be a blessing to many. You will have joy and gladness. Now, <clears throat> why will John be a blessing to many? See, that would be my first question. Luckily, we had an answer. 
for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor. Some translations would translate that as strong drink. There was a difference between wine and strong drink in biblical times. I'm not going to go into it. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. So John will be set apart by God for God, most likely as a Nazarite. If you have no idea what I just said, read number six. You know the next line. It'll do you good. Where the uh, Nazarite vow is described, this is also not unusual. The reason why I said earlier, John is the, uh, the mesh point. One of the fancy terms is he's the hinge between the Old Testament and the New Testament, is all of the little connections. If I told you about a prophet chosen from the womb, who would you think of in Israel? See, you would think Messiah, but if you were a first century Jew, you wouldn't. Jeremiah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. It's a hearkening back to Jeremiah, to the promise of restoration. Remember, for all the judgment in the prophets, there is hope. Isaiah goes on for 39 chapters, judging Israel, judging Judah, judging the nations. And then from chapters 40 through 66, it's a promise of what? Redemption, hope, kingdom. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, points to the destruction of Jerusalem over and over and over and calls the people to repentance and they don't listen over and over and over. And yet you have what in the middle of his book? Chapters 31, 32, 33, you have a promise of what? New covenant of God dwelling with his people, of the law being written on their hearts. Ezekiel, all the weird stuff that goes on in Ezekiel, the judgments against Jerusalem, the judgments against the exiles, the judgments upon the people and their sin, and yet you have what? The Valley of Dry Bones vision, where those that are dead are raised to life. That which was lost is now found. The people that are walking in darkness seeing a great light. In the midst of 400 years of silence, John doesn't just pop up and go, hey, I'm the guy, let's follow this way. No, we have a history and a working purposely designed to connect with the work that God is doing now in the Messiah with the work that he has done. When you see set apart from the womb, you would think Jeremiah. You would see the work of Samuel. You would think the work of Samson. You would think about the great judges, the great prophets, the great men of Israel's past, and be reminded that Yahweh has remembered that the graciousness of God poured out on those people is the same graciousness of God that is poured out on us will be the same graciousness of God that will be poured out in his kingdom. That there is nothing that is that will be done that has been forgotten. Nothing that is good that God will forsake. And how will the, what will the goal of this be? He will be great in the sight of the Lord, will drink no wine or liquor, will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. All right, quiz time. Let's test your theological knowledge. I love these, and so do you. If you don't, you're gonna. One word answer. The act of turning back to God. Uh, wrong R word. Oh, there it is. Repentance. He will grant the people repentance. 
What was the testimony at the beginning of this? What has the majority of the nation fallen into? A works righteous system. What's the danger of a works righteous system? I'm good. Why are you good? Because I do good things. Why will you be good? Because I will continue to do good things. Where is your salvation in that? Me. What are you turning from? You. (laughs) Because I have good in me. No, what's the starting point of the gospel? Why does the gospel offend people? I mean, what's the fundamental first understanding of the gospel? That you are not good. And you must repent, turn from your sins, and trust in God. A self-righteous, works-righteous people says, what do you mean turn from my sins? I'm doing good work. Again, go back to Isaiah. Your righteous deeds are as a filthy rag, Isaiah 64. There are none who are good. No, not one. None who seek after God. The first starting point is recognizing that righteousness is outside of us. It is from God, and he grants it to a faithful, trusting people who are not living for themselves, but living for him and his kingdom. This is the work that John will lay the groundwork for. You see this throughout the New Testament, Acts chapter 3. What did Peter tell the crowds? Repent, return, so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come. From where? The presence of the Lord. This goes back to Psalm 32. Blessed is the man whose what? Whose sin is forgiven, forgiven, whose iniquity is covered. 1 Thessalonians 1. They themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, how you turn to God away from idols and serve a living and true God. The gospel message is repentance, returning to God, turning from sin. This is your punchline in Mark. Mark is your most stripped-down, streamlined gospel. You don't want any extra details? Read Mark. After John had been taken into custody, Jesus came to the region of Galilee preaching the good news, saying, repent and believe the gospel. Mark 1, 14 and 15. It's the hallmark. There is nothing good that dwells in me. But by repenting of my sins, by turning to God, trusting in his righteousness, walking faithfully, hoping in his promises, I am granted righteousness because that is the work he has done. So, a description to make sure, just in case you're going, this is awesome work, but is there anything else I should know? Verse 17. It is he, talking about this John, who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children, the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That just escalated everything. This John, reminder that Yahweh is gracious, is not going to just do a work. He's going to do the work. What work? We'll go back to our great Italian prophet, Malachi chapter 3. Behold, what's your Bible reading rule? Anytime you see the word behold, what should you do? Stop, take a deep breath, something important is coming. I am going to send my messenger. He will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi chapter 4. Behold, 
telling you, Malachi liked that word, didn't he? I am going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Later on, John will give this testimony about himself from Isaiah chapter 40. A voice calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain, the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, I have to tell you all of this, because I have to be reminded of it every time I see this, because every time I read this, I go, there's a quote about that somewhere in Malachi. You know what I have to do? I have to Google it, because I can't remember the Bible verse, which is why I tell you to read Malachi. It will do you good. You know who didn't need to Google and be told this stuff when he heard this? Zacharias, an old priest who's been doing this for year after year after year, who married the daughter of an old priest and the sister of a priest who's been doing this for year after year after year. So when that angel tells you he's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children, Zacharias would be sitting there going, I know where that's at. I know what you're telling me. This is kind of a big deal. Which, if you'd like some homework this week, like as if I haven't given you 17 chapters to already read, read the rest of Luke 1, and it will help explain why Zechariah reacts the way that he does. Because when someone just told you that you're going to have a kid, and you're not in a position to have a kid, and you don't think you're having a kid, and not only are you having a kid, but that kid is going to do this work, who comes after this? Did you catch it, or did you miss it? I'll read slower. Hold on. Behold, I am going to send my messenger. He will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming. God is coming. He's coming to the temple. He's coming to restore the people. All that hope, all that longing, that righteousness that is not mine, that redemption for the nation, that suffering servant, that law written on my heart, that dead made alive, that righteousness by faith, all of that is coming. Now, question of the day. You're like, wait a minute, haven't we done that like three times already? Maybe we can have multiple questions of the day. I mean got to make sure you're paying attention. Oh, that just reminded me. Cameron, remind me next week to look up that song that I saw yesterday. Just just remind me later to look up that song because I saw, I saw a good one yesterday that would be so appropriate for us, but I, I can't remember right now and it's, it's I'm not looking for it. So why? God is doing all of this. Why? <laughs> you're like, don't ask me hard things. <laughs> yeah, but why? <laughs> See, this if you want to understand your life a little bit differently, if you want to make sense of your Bible a little bit more, and you want to see the imminence and the transcendence of God a little bit clearly, keep asking yourself the question, why? Because what it will do is drive you away from you. Because again, what's our starting point in the gospel? 
Remember your caveman theology. Me bad. Him good. So God has promised all this. Why? God is accomplishing all of this. Why? God will do all of this. Why? I know, but why? I mean, let's be honest. I've met a lot of people. I don't like a lot of them. And, and, and you know, I start looking at the judgment of God, and I get it. Like, why is there this faithful priest in the, it, just in his regular, everyday life, doing his regular, everyday things, and in the middle of that, there's an, why? Okay, let's help you out. How many of you have a bulletin handy? I, I didn't bring one up here. What Sunday is it for Advent? It's on the front. Yeah, but which Sunday of Advent is it? Which is the Sunday of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You want to see the love of God in action? You are reminded of it in every single chapter of Scripture. The fulfillment of the promises of God is a demonstration of the love of God in every single aspect of our lives. And that's why I say it's a balance. Because you don't, you don't want to overdose on it. Don't drive into the ditch. Oh, he, he loves me. Oh, he loves me. Look, I'm not faulting the song. I'm just saying. But don't fall into the ditch and forget that. Well, look at all the grand planning, the, the big things, the outside of time. And he's got this priest at this place at that time with that name. Like, who named Zacharias Zacharias 60 years ago? Like, that wasn't an accident because God knew that that name would matter this day. That's big. That's beyond me. That's a demonstration of his love. Well, he's giving this person to build a kingdom to save and redeem a people. Yes, that too is a demonstration of his love. Why am I not forsaken? Because God's love demonstrates itself in his preserving power. Why does he not forget us? Because God's love is, a demonstra is demonstrated in his remembering, in his working, in his guiding. Why is my salvation secure? Because it demonstrates how God has loved a people that in spite of themselves most of the time, he will rescue, redeem, and sanctify them. Why do I live differently? I mean, we've, we made a song about this one. I've said this a hundred times. How will they know we are Christians? And you have to say it twice because it doesn't sound right if you don't, right? Because it's by our love, by our love. It's like pita pita. You get reminded of it every single time. What does that mean? It means I can give them the benefit of the doubt. It means I can see them wandering in darkness and shine a great light. It means I can forgive. It means I can live for something beyond this place, beyond myself. I can forgive. I can show mercy. I can show grace. Why? Because I'm reminded every single day that I have been forgiven and I have been shown mercy and I have been shown grace and I'm reminded of the love of God poured out on me and how dare I think that they should have something less. That's why. And that's why it matters. It's a work of God through the ages for his people as a demonstration of who our God is. And in the midst of all of these things, his love shines through because it is a showing of how 
and why he does what he does. And Christian, please don't forget that none of this has changed. Not the first bit. Zacharias just happened to be the priest who just happened to be chosen to go on that day. Right. And you just happened to be sitting here on this day. You just happened to go to the grocery store when you do. Right. No coincidences in Zacharias's world ruled by God. And Christian, there are no coincidences in your world ruled by God. And the love of God is on display in all of his organizing, in all of his arranging, in all of his working. And the love of God is supposed to be on display in who else? Us. As we live, as we worship, as we celebrate, as we proclaim, we do so with an attitude that is grounded in God. That's our sanctification. That's our growing in holiness. A walking in him. Don't let that be something we just do because there's a tree up. Let it be something we do because there is a Savior who has ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father who loves, cares, and preserves us. Let's pray. Again, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the day that you've given, for the opportunity as your people to worship together. We thank you for the mercy that you've shown, for the promises that you have given and the promises that you have fulfilled. And Lord, we thank you for the promises that are not yet here because they encourage us and they give us what we long for. Lord, strengthen us to walk faithfully that we would know you, love you, trust you, and serve you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war. With the cross of Jesus, going on before. Christ the royal master, leads against the Christian soldiers 
marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before with the cross of Jesus going on before uh, just a couple reminders real quick um, everybody who's sick <laughs> I said Mike and Bill have COVID be in prayer for uh, Jane and Judy that they're they stay safe and stay with everything. Um, Ginger with her asthma and stuff riding that bus, keeping up with everything. Uh, a couple folks that we have that strep and just some folks staying home trying to be safe. So just try to remember everybody. And if you think of somebody that you haven't seen in a couple of weeks, give them a call. And then remind me so I'll give them a call too because sometimes we lose folks when they miss a couple of weeks and we don't want to do that. So as you think about it, keep these folks in prayer and keep reminding them. All right, let's pray. Again, Lord, as we enter back into the world, strengthen us that we would stand firm, walking the path that leads to your kingdom, forsaking all else, knowing and trusting you alone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.